Before we pray, um, just to uh, maybe take you within the door of my study, um, when, when the Apostle Peter says that Paul has written things that are hard to understand, I say amen to that. And it usually takes me the whole week to begin to get a grasp on, on what Paul is saying at times. And the challenge of preaching is trying to, to make it simple enough to understand that you can learn in 45 minutes what it's taken me seven days to begin to get the grasp of. So that is why we take time to pray before we open the Bible, because we need the Lord's help to understand what his word says. And I need the Lord's help to not make a complete hash of it so that you have a chance of, of understanding it. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, your word is clear, but we are slow. Lord, slow of heart, slow of mind uh, to, at times, understand what you are saying. So we, we ask for your Spirit's help because it's only by his power that we can understand it and having understood it, believe it and having believed it to then live it out. Uh, these are things that are too difficult for us, Lord, so we need your help. We ask you by your Spirit to teach us, to open our eyes, to behold wonderful things in your word, to give us soft hearts that, that are ready to receive what your word is saying uh, and to believe it. So Lord, help us this morning as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in uh, Galatians 3 again, um, but we're going to start in the Gospel of John. So if you want to get a finger in both of those places, Galatians 3. But before I read the passage we're looking at today, I just want to meditate on the early chapters of the Gospel of John, and particularly uh, the interactions between John the Baptist, not to be confused with the writer of the Gospel of John, but the interactions between John the Baptist and Jesus. As you probably know, for a very brief amount of time, John the Baptist and Jesus ministered to the Jewish people at the same time, baptizing those who wanted to repent of their sins. And of course, John the Baptist, he was the forerunner of the Messiah. He came announcing the coming of that king of all kings. And he was, as such, the last prophet of the old covenant. And when John baptized Jesus, that was his way of announcing to Israel that that Messiah had come, the one who would usher in the new covenant. And in John chapter 1, we see uh, John, after he's baptized Jesus, he actually seems to encourage his followers to stop following him and to start following Jesus. Look at John 1, starting in verse 35. This is after John has baptized Jesus. Verse 35 says, Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples, the ones who were there with him, heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And that's what you would expect of John. As the forerunner pointing to the Messiah, you would expect him to encourage those who had started to follow him to follow that one. 
That was the whole reason he came. And so when we get to John 3, and we find that John the Baptist still has disciples, I've always found that strange because Jesus' ministry is in full swing, and yet John the Baptist still has disciples. And there's, there's a, an, an incident in which his disciples actually get jealous about how many people are starting to follow Jesus. So let's look at John chapter 3, and let's start back up in verse 22. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. You can detect maybe a little bit of jealousy there, right? Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's almost like John is saying to his disciples, why are you still here? I am not the Christ. You might be jealous that more are going to him, but that thrills me. I am thrilled that more are going to him because that's what I came for, to point people to him, that they would follow him. The bride, that is the people of God, belongs to him, not to me. I will fade off the scene while he shines ever more brilliantly. John's purpose was never to gain disciples for himself. It was always to gain disciples for Christ. But John's disciples were clinging to this old covenant prophet when the one he was pointing to was in their midst. They seemed to misunderstand why John was there in the first place. The Judaizers whom Paul is combating through the letter to the Galatians are very much like those disciples of John the Baptist. These Judaizers were clinging to the old covenant law, trying to save themselves by their law keeping and trying to convince the Galatian believers to do the same when the one that the law was pointing to had already come and purchased salvation. Just like John's disciples were misunderstanding why John was there, so the Judaizers were misunderstanding why the law of God had been given. They misunderstood the purpose of the law. The law was never meant to be the end-all, be-all for God's people. It was instead meant to direct them into the Messiah's hands. And this is what Paul's going to help the Galatians to see in Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. He's going to show them the purpose of the law, the true purpose of the law. And as we study what Paul says here and we come to realize why God gave the law, we're going to appreciate the law all the more 
And at the same time, our hearts are going to be bound to Jesus Christ all the more. Because we're going to see clearly that the law was never meant to be the way for me to get to God. No, it it serves another function entirely. And that's what we're going to see. So let's look at chapter 3 of Galatians. And I'm going to read verses 19 through 22. Starting in verse 19, Paul says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We're going to begin with verses 19 to 20. And in verses 19 to 20, we're going to see the law's purpose and the law's place in God's dealings with men. Just a little bit of a review. Paul, in chapter 3, he's been proving that justification is by faith alone, not by the works of the law. In verses 1 through 5, remember, Paul was pointing to the Galatians' personal experience, reminding them uh, that they, they came to salvation, they received the Spirit, not by doing the law, but by believing in Jesus. And then in verses 6 to 9, Paul went to the Scriptures, and he proved from the life of Abraham that even from the very beginning, justification has been by faith, not by works. Then, in verses 10 through 14, Paul showed why the law could not justify, why works of the law are no basis by which somebody can be justified. And then, in verses 15 through 18, we saw how Paul uh, showed us that God made promises to Abraham and to Christ, and that those promises that he made to Abraham and to Christ would be fulfilled not by law, but simply by the fact that God promised it to them. Law came 430 years later after God made those promises, and the law did not invalidate the promises that God had made. Now, that might begin to pose a question, the question that is asked in verse 19. Why the law then? If I'm not justified by the law, if what God promised Abraham and Christ doesn't come by the law, then why in the world did God give the law in the first place? What is the purpose then, Paul? If you're right about this, why do we have the law at all? Paul tells us the purpose in verse 19. Why the law then? He says it was added because of transgressions. That's the purpose of the law. It was added because of, or better, for the sake of transgressions. Now that phrase doesn't seem very clear. What does it mean that the law was added for the sake of transgressions? That's probably not very easy to understand. It wasn't for me. Well, let's think about it. What is transgression? What do I do when I transgress? I'm, yep, yep, sin, but even more specifically, 
You know, sin is kind of a missing of the mark, but transgression is what? It's I'm crossing a line that has been drawn in the sand. There is a law that has set a boundary, and when I sin, I am crashing through that boundary. I am transgressing that boundary. That's what transgression is. It is to break the law. It's a little bit different nuance than the word sin. Transgression is to break the law. It's to cross that boundary. So this verse, or this phrase that the law was added for the sake of transgressions, you could say it this way. The law was added for the sake of breaking the law. The law was added for the sake of breaking the law. Well, that doesn't help us, Josh. That still doesn't make much sense. Well, let's look at verse 22. Let's take a peek a little bit later in this passage, and let's read verse 22, because this, I think, starts us going in the right direction of understanding this phrase. Verse 22, Paul says, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The Scripture of which law is a part, is said here in verse 22 to actively gather everyone up and place them under sin. Now, how does it do that, and what does that mean? Well, let's look at a few cross-references for help. Let's go back to Romans, Romans chapter 3. We're trying to figure out what does it mean when Paul says the law was added for the sake of transgressions. How is it that the, law, that the law gathers everybody up and puts them under sin? Romans 3, we're looking at verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> Paul in verse 19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what does the law do? The law reveals our sin to us, and it condemns us. It renders us accountable to God. The law has commands, and it has penalties. And sin, when sin occurs... That law has been transgressed, and guilt comes. Do you see that there in that passage? Now let's go to Romans 4 and look at verse 15. Romans 4, verse 15. Paul there says, For the law brings about wrath. Again, the law has prescriptions of, of how to penalize sin. That's wrath, God's wrath. The law prescribes the wrath of God in response to sin. The law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there also is no violation. If there's no law, how can I break the law? In order to be seen as breaking the law, there has to be a law to break, right? Now let's go to chapter 5 of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 12. That says, Therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, 
Just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And now he pauses to explain a little bit. Verse 13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. When there's no law, the guilt of sin is not readily apparent, is it? You cannot be called a lawbreaker if there's no law present to be broken. The law sets up boundaries, and it makes our guilt clear when we cross those boundaries. Without those boundaries there, it's hard to know when we're crossing them because they're not there to be crossed. You know, our sin is not as readily apparent. Now look at Romans 5, verse 20. Verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. When the law came in, every sin that was being committed was also at that moment categorized as transgression. Because every sin, once the law came, every sin was shown to be a crossing of that line. It was characterized as transgression. With the coming of the law, all our sin is shown to be transgression. It's shown to be law-breaking behavior. Next, look at Romans 7, starting in verse 7, all the way through verse 13. Paul says, verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except how? Through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So, you know, before, before maybe Paul took that command seriously, he was coveting, right? But he didn't know that it was transgression until he saw the law, you shall not covet. And then he realized his sin was transgression. He was breaking law, right? Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin is so wicked that when God lays down a law, sin rushes to break that law. Verse 9, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. May it never be. Rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So the law reveals the sinfulness of sin to us. That is, how perverse and contrary to God's ways it really is, to the point that it will actively go against God's revealed will and kill us through the penalty of the law. Now back to Galatians 3. I think now we can understand what Paul is saying when he says that the law was added for the sake of transgressions. He doesn't mean that the law was added to make man sinful because man was already sinful, right? Before the law was ever given. 
Instead, he seems to mean that the law was added for the purpose of causing our sin to be a law-breaking sort of thing, revealing our sin to be worthy of death and totally against God. The law exposes our sin as being the truly monstrous thing that it is, and it condemns our sin. Paul says that is the purpose of the law. That's not the only purpose of the law, but that is the purpose relevant to what he's talking about here. So that's the law's purpose. The law's purpose is to highlight sin as transgression, as a breaking of the law, as incurring guilt, as bringing about the wrath of God. That's the purpose of the law. Now let's consider the law's place in dealing with God. He's going to kind of return to that purpose of the law subject a little later, but he pauses to talk about the place of the law in the economy of God, in God's dealings with men. He begins to, in verse 19, prepare us to more fully see that the law, rather than being superior to God's promises, is actually a servant of God's promises. The law is not superior to God's promises, it's a servant of God's promises. And what Paul's about to say here is going to help us appreciate that. And he's going to, he's going to do this in two ways. First, Paul is going to show us that the law was always intended to be temporary. Whatever's temporary is not ultimate, right? If it's only here for a little bit, you know that whatever that thing is, it's not the whole enchilada, right? If it's temporary, it's not ultimate. That's the first way he's going to show us. The second way is by comparing the way the law was given to how the promise was given. He's going to show that there's an inferiority there to the way in which the law was given as compared with the way the promise was given. So let's look at the first one. We're going to see that the law is secondary, not primary. We're going to see that the law is not superior, it's subservient to the promises of God. And the first way we're going to see that is by seeing how the law is temporary. Temporary. Look at verse 19 again. So why the law then? It was added because of transgressions until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Most translations put that phrase next. The NASB for some reason doesn't, but in the Greek language that's what comes next. The phrase until the seed would come to whom the promise had been given. We see here that the law is temporary. It's only to be in place until who comes? The seed, right? And who's the seed? Remember we learned that last week in verse 16? The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and Paul identified that seed for us as Christ. Now, what promises is Paul talking about? He says, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Well, look back up in verse 8. What is the promise we see in verse 8? The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. That's the promise. And last week we saw that that promise was made not only to Abraham, but to who? To his seed, to Jesus. We saw that in Genesis 22, verses 17 to 18. So the law was given, 
and the law was to be in place until Christ came. When Christ came and received the promise, that is, when Christ came and the nations began to be blessed in him, when people began to receive salvation in him, the special purpose of the law that Paul's talking about here would no longer be necessary. Now, Paul, he's going to unpack the significance of the law's temporary nature for us later, but for now, it serves to reveal the law's secondary nature. If something's temporary, it's not ultimate, right? It's secondary. It's not the whole enchilada. It's, it might serve something greater, but in and of itself, it's not the big thing if it's temporary, right? So next, we're going to see how the law is secondary to promise because it's given indirectly. The law is secondary to the promise because it's given indirectly. Paul, in verse 19 to 20, he begins to compare how the law was given with how the promises were given. And the manner in which these two things were given indicate which is subservient to the other. In verse 19, Paul says that the law was ordained how? Through angels, right? The law was ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. So what we learn there is that God did not directly deliver the law into the hands of his people, right? God didn't carve out the Ten Commandments and come down and, and give it to the people himself, right? He used others to deliver the law to his people. He did it indirectly. And the involvement of angels in the giving of the law is something that we're almost surprised when we read it because when we read through the Old Testament, that doesn't jump out at us. But it's, it is implied there and it's recognized by the New Testament. Let's just to see this. I had a whole bunch of verses to go to, but let's just go to Acts 7 where Stephen in his great sermon recognizes the involvement of the angels in the giving of the law. And there's so, this is a rabbit trail we could head on down. And if you have questions about it, just drop it in the box and then I can cover it then, all right? That box is here for any questions that you want sermons on. But let's go to Acts 7 where we see Stephen recognizing the involvement of angels in God's dealings with men, particularly when it comes to the giving of the law. So this is Stephen's defense as he's been arrested by uh, those who are unhappy with him. And we're going to just drop down right into the middle of his sermon. Let's look at verse 30. There Stephen is talking about how Moses, after he left Egypt, uh, after he killed a man, he was in Midian for 40 years. Verse 30 says, And after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. He said, well, I thought God was in that bush. Well, yes, in a way, but Stephen says an angel was in that thorn bush. Now let's look at verse 35. This Moses, whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer, with the help of what? Or who? With the help of 
the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Now look at verse 38. This is the one, Moses, who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers. And he, Moses, received living oracles to pass on to you. What was Moses receiving on Mount Sinai? Yeah, the law, right? And Stephen says here, it was an angel speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Now look at verse 53. Stephen, speaking to these Jews who were persecuting him, he says to them, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So we see there the involvement of angels in God's giving the law to his people. But it was not only through angels that God delivered his law to the people. But even more indirectly, the law came, in the words of Galatians 3.19, by the agency of a mediator, or more literally, by the hand of a mediator. And Stephen spoke to this in Acts 7.38, which I read. He said, that Moses received living oracles to pass on to you, right? Moses received it from God, and then he passed it off to the people. Moses was the one who went up that mountain. He was the one who received the Ten Commandments written on two tablets of stone, and it was him who came back down that mountain with those tablets in his hands to deliver to the people. And it was Moses who wrote the Torah, the law, Genesis to Deuteronomy, Moses wrote that and gave it to the people. God taught it to Moses, who in turn gave it to the people. So you see the indirect way in which God gave the law to the people. How did God give the promises to Abraham? Was there a Moses there standing between God and Abraham? No, there was no mediator. God directly gave the promises to Abraham, not indirectly. Very different, very different ways in which these two things, the law and the promise, were given. In verse 20 of Galatians 3, Paul highlights the mediatorial role of Moses. He says in verse 20, Now a mediator, speaking of Moses, is not for one party only, whereas God is one. Paul here speaks of the people receiving the law from a mediator. A mediator represents two parties, right? A mediator, by definition, is a go-between for two different parties, God and the people. The people receive the law from a representative of God, not directly from God himself. And Paul follows that up by saying, whereas a mediator is for two parties, God is one. God is one. Paul here seems to want us to recall how Abraham received the promise from God. When God made his promises to Abraham, there was no mediator, as I said. There was no Moses there to represent God. God represented himself and spoke his promises to Abraham. So you can see just in the way that God delivered the law 
and in the way in which he delivered the promise that they're not on the same level. One is more ultimate than the other one, just by how God dealt with men in giving those things. So you see the law's purpose. It was added for the sake of transgression. You see the law's place. It's secondary to the promise. It's not superior to the promise. Now, let's go to verses 21 to 22. And here we're going to see the law's proper relation to the promise. On the surface, it might seem like law and promise are at odds with one another. Let's look at verse 21 of Galatians 3. Paul asks another question. He asks, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. At the beginning of this verse, Paul asks uh, the question that a critic might ask, or even someone who is sincerely confused and is struggling to understand how the law and the promise fit together. And this question almost implies that maybe there is a contradiction between law and promise. Or at least, Paul, in the way you're talking, the way you're talking makes it sound like law and promise are at odds. And Paul is absolutely allergic to such a suggestion. Such a suggestion would imply that God is not fully truthful or not fully consistent. And Paul despises any such objection. Even though the law came indirectly from God to the people, it was still from God, just as much as the promise was. And God doesn't talk out of both sides of his mouth. He doesn't say one thing and then contradict it by something he says later. He is truth itself. And therefore, he cannot be inconsistent and he cannot lie. That's why Paul is so vehement. He says, may it never be. I despise such a suggestion that the law would be contrary to the promise. But he still has to explain how does it fit? How does the law fit with the promise? In this verse, Paul says that if God gave a law that could bring eternal life to someone, then a right standing with God would come that way. He's stating a hypothetical situation. If that was true, if a law really had been given by God which could bring eternal life to a person, then the law would be contrary to the promise. He's already made that case. He's already told us in this chapter that that the inheritance either comes by law or it comes by promise. It doesn't come by both. It's either one or the other. Because if it's by law, that cancels out promise. It cannot be by both. That's what he said in verse 18. Remember verse 18? If the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. To have it both ways, to say that you could get life by promise and you could get it by law, you could take your choice, either way is valid. To say that would be to say that Jesus died for nothing. Remember chapter 2, verse 21? What did Paul say in chapter 2, verse 21? He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through law, then Christ died, what? Needlessly, right? It can't be both ways. It's one or the other. 
And Paul has proven already in chapter 3 that there is no law that has been given by which a man can gain life. What did he say in verse 10? He said, As many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So that hypothetical situation that he states in verse 21 is purely hypothetical. It's not true. There is no law that has been given by which a man may gain eternal life, which means there is no contradiction between law and promise, right? Law fits in some other way. Law was not given as a means by which to get the promise. It fits in some other way. That's not its function. If it was, it would contradict law, but that's not its function, so it does not contradict law. I know it's getting a bit heady. I'm sorry. But I'm hoping verse 22 will just kind of wrap it up so that we can get our arms around this. God never intended for the law to be the basis by which someone would gain life eternal. But that is what the Judaizers thought the law was for, isn't it? Because they were saying to the Galatians, oh yeah, you need to believe in Jesus but you're not saved unless you get circumcised and you do what the law says. They believed that the law was functioning that way to be a a basis by which you would get life. In verse 22, Paul is going to show that the Judaizers have completely misunderstood the purpose of the law. Look at verse 22. Paul says, But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He's saying here that what the Judaizers think is 180 degrees on the wrong side of what the law was given for. Rather than the law being the basis by which someone can get life, the law actually condemns everyone to death. Paul says that the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. We see scripture personified here. Did we see that somewhere before? Scripture kind of being personified, said to act almost like God acts or exactly like God acts? Yeah, we saw that up in verse 8, remember? The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The scripture is said to foresee and to preach And we saw then that the scripture as the word of God is an extension of God himself. And it's the same here in verse 22. Scripture is doing something in verse 22. And if scripture is doing something, that means who is doing something? God is doing something, right? Because scripture is his word. It's just an extension of himself. And Paul is showing here in verse 22 that God's intention for the law, which is scripture is to shut up everyone under sin. That is why God gave the law, to shut up everyone under sin. Like a sheepdog running around, cramming together all the sheep into one pen. That's what the scripture is doing. Shutting up everyone under sin. And what is sin in the eyes of the law again? That T word. How does the law see sin? transgression, right? Verse 19, the law was added for the sake of transgression. And what is the penalty that the law prescribes for anyone who transgresses it? 
death, curse. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, in verse 22, that word for shut up, it's the Greek word sunkleo, and we find it in Luke 5, verse 6. Let's go over to Luke 5, verse 6, because it makes a wonderful illustration of what the Scripture is doing. Luke 5, and let me back up to verse 4. Luke 5, verse 4 When he, Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed, sunkleo, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. Sincleo is used to describe the effect a net has upon the fish, right? This word carries the idea of confinement. And back in Galatians 3, the scripture, God's word, intends for the law to be like a giant net coming up around you on every side, allowing no escape. The same word is used in Romans 11.32, where, God said, where, where the, it says, For God has shut up all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Sunkleo, shut up. That is what the law does. You say, maybe I can get to God this way. Nope, I've transgressed that line. Maybe I can go this way. No, I transgressed that one. Let me look back here. Maybe I can get to God that way. No, I transgressed that way. The law when you view it, shuts you up on every side so that you see that you cannot get to God by obeying it. The law, when you look at it, when you really consider it, it pronounces you guilty and worthy of death. Even if you obey 99.99% of it, your failure to obey that 0.01% constitutes your failure to abide by all of it and you stand condemned, worthy of death. Look over at James chapter 2, where he makes that point. Because remember, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. James chapter 2, verse 8, he says, If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as what? Transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The law of God is like one big window pane. And if you just take one little pebble and you huck it at that window and it just pierces one little corner, you've broken the whole window pane, haven't you? That window's no good anymore. 
It's a unified whole. God gave every command on there. And just one violation is a criminal act against the lawgiver himself. doesn't matter where you disobey, you have offended the lawgiver, God himself. Do you remember when Moses came down from the mountain with two tablets of stone in his hands, which had the Ten Commandments written upon them? What did Moses do when he saw the golden calf and the people dancing around worshiping it? Exodus 32, 19, he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. By that act, Moses showed that they had broken God's law. They had shattered it by their idolatry, their transgression. You, and I mean myself as well, you have broken God's law. And you have done so not merely by violating one part of it, though that would be enough to merit your condemnation forever, but you have transgressed more of it than you can imagine. Every hateful thought, every lustful look, every envious complaint, every failure to love your neighbor just as zealously as you love yourself, every refusal to love God with your whole being is a shattering of the law of God. John Calvin said, there's not a man who knows the hundredth part of his sin. Any part that you see, there's an iceberg beneath that of sin. We have merited death from God's hands millions of times over. In the eyes of the law, we are cursed. And when you truly come to that realization, most of us are, are walking around not even realizing that. But when you do realize that, you will do one of two things. You will either foolishly rage against God, cursing your maker for having the gall to exercise his rule over you, his creature. That's what the listeners to Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 did, right? When he showed them their guilt before the law of God, they were convicted. They knew that they had transgressed God's law. How did they react? Verse 57 says, They cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. You will either do that, or you will fall to your knees, and you will realize that there is nothing you can do to save yourself. And you will ask what the crowd asked in Acts 2 that Pentecost morning. When Peter showed them their guilt, they said, what shall we do? You will ask the question that the Philippian jailer asked when the sentence of death was hanging over him like a sword. What did he ask? What must I do to be saved? You will plead before God what the tax collector pleaded in Jesus' parable. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That is what the law does. It shows you that there's no way out. You have transgressed the law of God. You are worthy of death, and there's nowhere for you to go. When a fish is trapped in the net, there's no way for it to get out. All it can do is look up and hope for the mercy of the fishermen, right? That's what the law does for us. It bottles us up. It shuts us up so that there's nothing we can do but look up and ask for mercy. And when you do repent of your sins, and you believe in Christ, 
and you ask for mercy, it is then that the law of God has fulfilled its great purpose. Right? That's what it says in Galatians 3.22. It says, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's the purpose of the law. It's to bring you to the end of yourself. It's to destroy all hope you have of earning God's favor by your efforts. It is to shut you up to all other options except the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in him that you can receive the promise of eternal life and forgiveness and justification. Now, why is it that Jesus is the only way? We've already seen it, haven't we? He alone fulfilled the law in your place, and he alone became a curse for us, verse 13. He took the curse upon himself and satisfied the penalty that the law demanded. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he showed that God accepted the payment he made on behalf of his people. And when you turn from your sins and when you trust him to be your Lord and Savior, you are united to him. And God sees you like we've sung. He sees you as clothed in Christ's righteousness. And being found in Jesus, it is then that God's promise to Jesus has been fulfilled. In you, all the nations will be blessed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for showing us the purpose of the law so that we may use it rightly. If we're trying to use the law as a way to figure out how to earn God's favor and to get right with him and to make it to heaven, we've completely misunderstood the purpose of the law and we're not even reading it carefully. If we read it carefully, we would see that we've broken it. There is no way there. There's no way for me and my strength to get to God. And it leaves us looking elsewhere. And your word clearly tells us where to look, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray you'd help us just every day to abandon all thought of ever trying to earn your favor and to realize that Christ alone is our only hope so that we may just daily, day after day, till the day we die, be trusting in him, drawing near to you, Father, through him alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.